0: Well, it's about that time, so grab your cup of coffee, some tea, or a glass of wine. This is a monumental moment for me because although I'm very capable, I'm usually reserved when it comes to public speaking, but I believe the time has come for me to minister to people as I minister to myself, and this is the forum that I chose to convey that message. Let it be known that none of what I'm sharing today is from a place of bitterness or unforgiveness or to subject anyone to ridicule. This is just my truth and a way for you to get to know me. It's an extension of my calling, if you will. It's a way for me to cope with life and function well in the earth and pay it forward. This is ministry and art form to me and it's legacy in the making so that my children and grandchildren will be able to see their way through the damage that has already been done. And to those who are tired of being bound, it's freedom. So, if you're here in this very moment, you're probably meant to be. My topic is Me versus Me. And I'm your host, Tara. So, welcome to Divine Struggles Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water. This is a real talk, motivational platform where the unspoken is heard. I want to start by saying that I've lied before, I've stolen before and even talked about a few people. I've judged, and I've been judged. And I've experienced more miscarriages than I can count on both hands. And I buried one child by way of stillbirth. My son was the victim of a drive-by shooting where he was sprayed with bullets and suffered a collapsed lung and had to be punctured in his side in order to survive. And my oldest daughter began to walk in my old footsteps because unresolved trauma recycles generationally. I was abused as a teenager and into my early 20s. And I would be punched in the face and choked until I lost consciousness. I'd be held against my will and pinned into corners and smothered until I became panicked and couldn't breathe. I've been subjected to other people's plights most of my life. I've been given up on, misunderstood, taken for granted, disrespected. I've witnessed death on more than one level. I became my own victim at 13, when my father decided to be footloose and fancy free. But life went on. I have older siblings and I have younger siblings that I didn't grow up with. And I have one that I did. And we all have our own story. But the one common denominator in mine is me. You see that when you're a prisoner of anger, you become governed by war. And when you're governed by your feelings, You have much to endure. Almost 19 years ago, when my cousin made a toast at my wedding reception, she said something about me that I didn't know about myself. She said that whatever I set my mind to do, I did it with all intensity, good or bad. And I was surprised to hear that because I didn't think intensity went with my frailties. But I listened because I knew she was coming from a loving place and it was a safe space. Thinking back, though, I can remember it feeling a bit like listening to a eulogy because I was detached from my truth. My soul had been wounded for years and I couldn't fully embrace the moment. It was all just too good to be true and I couldn't make the best of it. I was dealing with childhood abandonment issues and the aftermath of physical and mental abuse, and my thinking was distorted. I remember at one time during the reception, my cousin stood next to me and said, Tara, it's okay. Because for a moment I felt like I was fading into the background in a room full of people because of intrusive thoughts. And she saw me. We were only a month apart, but she took on that big sister-cousin role from the very start. She's always protected me no matter what. And where I was in life and even through her own struggles, she found time to reach me and embrace me. She was always reminding me that I was so much more. And she loved me even my darkness. Sometimes I worried that I let her down, but she never gave up on me, even to this day. And so I ponder what she said from time to time, and I tried to figure out what that meant for me. Intensity. It's defined as a forcefulness, a passion, or a magnitude of fervor, right? But I didn't see that in myself. I just learned to live in whatever my emotions manifested. The interesting thing is that I found out when I looked up the word intensity in Hebrew that it's the word for Atma, and each letter is significant. Ayin, sadi, mem, hey. Ayin symbolizes an I and stands for wisdom or spiritual vision. Sadi stands for righteousness, but not in a pious way but as in one who follows the correct path. Mem is a symbol for water, the living word, or knowledge. And hey means to be revealed or to behold. So intensity as it speaks to me now from a language that speaks volume says that I was born to walk in wisdom. So purpose was in me from the start, but my energy was misplaced for a time. The scripture says that the eyes of the Father toward those that walked in the correct path and His ears toward their cry. But for a time, I didn't know who I was. So although His mercy was with me and His grace kept me, my cry was often fruitless and my prayers were amiss because I wasn't fully present. All these years later, I realized that the intensity of my discerning and the intensity of my visions and my dreams And the intensity of my fight and my inner struggles were all convictions of my calling. They were my battle cry, and it's where my deliverance lies. It's been said that we're all at the center of our own narrative, a narrative that changes every time we retell it based on where we are in life and who we tell it to. We often forget that we're taught how to feel and how to think, even as babies, and we're taught what to expect from life and how to react to a given situation. Most of us are consumed by troubles, long before we're able to measure the depths of spiritual matters, so we learn to function conflicted. Growing up, I was one of those kids that could grin from ear to ear, but my mother also said that I could be very stoic, not the least bit phased by people. She says as a baby, there were only three people I'd go to, her, my dad, and my grandmother. And I had an aunt named Queen Elizabeth. Yep, that's right, the real one. Her and my mother were thick as thieves. But my mother said whenever my aunt would try to hold me, that I'd cry until she gave me back. And she'd call me a little Hainty thing. Probably a combo of like hateful and cranky or just plain old funny acting. I don't know, but when I looked it up, Hainty was a name that meant a person of great power and potential. Possessing intelligence and sensitivity and electric creativity whatever that means, but I'll take it because the queen had made a decree over me. My mother worked for the owner of a local newspaper for 42 years. Her hours were consistent Monday through Friday, 8 to 3. She made sure me and my sister ate breakfast before school. We took our vitamins every day, and when she packed us lunches, people would call them hungry man lunches because we had so much food. And she went to every parent-teacher conference And even had to speak out against a few racial incidences concerning my teachers. And we ate dinner at the table. And after, we watched shows like Good Times and Different Strokes and What's Happening. On weekends, we watched Saturday cartoons and Soul Train. Sometimes my mother played Anita Baker and Whitney Houston and Luther Vandross on her CD player. And we had Big Breakfast on Sunday. Me and my sister would often see her snack on cherry tomatoes like grapes and eat grapefruit, sometimes sprinkled with sugar if it wasn't sweet. She made open-faced cheddar cheese toast on wheat. (laughs) She fixed us things like cheddar on pumpernickel or tuna and pita, bread or cream cheese on rice cakes. My mother cooked pot roasts and clay pots with red and wine and red potatoes, and we ate bay scallops and salmon and whiting from the seafood market or fresh fish that someone in the family had caught. We ate salad too, and broccoli rabe and string beans, and she made homemade soups and stuffed bell peppers. She tried to make me eat liver and onions until I threw that up, but we carved pumpkins on Halloween, and she roasted the seeds, and during the summer we picked fresh beech plums, and she made beech plum jelly. And we had picnics on the beach, and she would cook fried chicken and potato salad and make a huge thermos full of country time lemonade. And she made cakes and jello and homemade apple pie with vanilla haagen ice cream and sweet potato pie and old-fashioned gingerbread with whipped cream. She kept it balanced, though, because we had baked more than we had fried, and fruit was a staple in our home, and we ate our veggies every day. We got what we wanted for Christmas and on our birthdays, and she brought homemade sheet cakes from a local woman who baked in her kitchen for special occasions. And don't get me started on the layers of clothes and socks and shoes inside the snow boots during the winter months. My mom was my safe space. My home was my safe space. My dad was my safe space. Outside of that, I was very selective, I was shy, and I was very in tune to my surroundings. I felt people's energies, but I didn't always know what to do with what I felt, so I was guarded. In fact, I didn't like going to school because it was a culture shock to me. It was a system that I felt disconnected from. I suppose for some children, it was their home away from home or their way of escape, but never for me. I get written up for daydreaming as early as elementary school. And once my father asked me, um, he said, what are you thinking about? and I'd say my life outside of here. As far as my dad, he was key in my deliverance because at one point my world revolved around him. His influence was very significant in my life. And my mother's influence, you know, a mom tends to go without saying. They're not allowed much wiggle room. But when dads are not there, it tends to become the norm. The problem for me was that mine was there right up until he wasn't. When he was there, he made sure that we did things as a family. We had Thanksgiving in the city with family or Christmas at home with family. We went to the drive-through movies as a family. He was affectionate. With my mother, from what I can remember, they always kissed three times on the lips. (laughs) They danced together. They sang together. They took photos on the beach together. They even snuggled on the couch together to tell me that I was expecting a baby sister. But my dad, he drove for uh, Hampton Chitney uh, charter bus, and he drove for about 37 years. He worked nights, and he drove from one end of Long Island to the city and back. Sometimes he pulled more than one shift. I got to ride with him when they were just vans, and when we he drove the big buses, sometimes he'd bring them home between shifts to get some rest, right, in the winter. And sometimes he'd get stuck in the snow, and we lived on a dead end, so he had to pull some Tricks out in order to turn the bus around, and he'd get a thrill out of watching all the neighbors come running out to help push him out of the snow as he rocked back and forth. But it never took him long because he used to train people to drive those buses so he maneuvered them well. And when I rode with him, we'd go into the city and grab a bite to eat between runs, and you couldn't tell me nothing sitting in that first row seat behind the big glass window to the right of him. He would always look to see my expression as we approached the city skyline and he'd say, don't ever be afraid to leave, okay? I came from a small town and he wanted me to experience life beyond that mindset. So my dad, he taught me driving skills. He showed me how to change a tire and he let me watch him change the oil. He tried to teach me how to catch a football, but I think he was hoping for a boy and just decided to make do since I was his first child. But one night, After work, he woke me up and he snuck me some cookies and something to drink, which wasn't unusual. But this time, he handed me a little gray Bible and told me that it was his grandmother's. He often talked about how special she was. So when he said that he wanted me to have it, I was excited. Then he started to talk to me about God and miracles and he spoke about death and some near-death experiences he had when he was a sick um, child. And at my great-grandmother's funeral... When he saw the look on my face at her dead body um, and seeing that for the first time, he called me up to her coffin and he talked about how natural it was and suggested that I would touch her um, so that I wouldn't be afraid of the unknown. And you talk about tears. Um, It seemed like it was his mission that I didn't leave that way, though. And eventually I, I touched her, but I snatched back. But he had me do it again so that I could see it through calm and not afraid of her in that state. And I did it because he was right beside me and he didn't let up. But then he asked me, he said, what did it feel like? And I said, well, she felt cold and hard. And he explained that her spirit had transitioned and didn't need her body anymore. It could have been a little traumatizing for a kid and I wouldn't do it to mine. but I ended up being okay, I I think. I didn't have any nightmares anyway, but... Dad planted little seeds all the time. I suppose that's what all parents do, even when they don't think so. Good seeds and bad seeds. As far as the scripture goes, I never saw him read them, but he told me he once did from cover to cover. And so I would say, um, he would tell me, I think you'll understand more about God as you read the book. And that God would eventually speak to me and... I just believed him because he was my dad, so later I'd have many questions, but in that moment, I believed my dad enough to ha- to have been affected by that later on in life, like even today, so that night, I tried reading the Bible, I had to be about five or six, and it was the King James Version, and I didn't understand what I was reading when I got to the genealogies, But I pronounced those names however they came out. And I would read a little every night when I went to bed for quite some time. I didn't know what I was doing or what it was doing to me. I definitely knew that it was planting more seeds. And over time I would come to question them though. I tried to fathom in my mind who God was. I would lay on the ground and stare into the sky just to see how far I could see. And I'd get lost in a daze after a while. My father would come to call me a daydreamer. I would stare at my hands to conceive that I was on the inside of them. (laughs) I still do that from time to time just to remind myself that I live beyond the flesh. I live beyond the flesh. I live beyond the flesh. And I understood young that my parents were vessels. I used to stare at them a lot when they weren't looking. I don't know what I was looking for, but I did. And at times, I did wonder why he chose them for me. I tried to understand an invisible God in a natural world, and I wondered about things like death, probably because it was instilled in me to wonder about it very young. But I wondered were people really walking around heaven all day? And did rest in peace mean that you were asleep till further notice? Or maybe you were back in that same space you were before you were born? That little girl in me had so many questions all the time, and some of them answered and some not. I mean, I knew in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But no one ever told me that he shakes the earth from its place and makes the pillars tremble, or that he speaks to the sun and seals the light in the stars, and that he stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea, or that his message is in the constellations. I just thought that there were horoscopes that you found in the daily newspaper. But now I'm able to tell my children that he is beyond science. And when they look up at his wonders to know that they can't be fathomed and that he can't be fully perceived by their human mind, but it doesn't change how he is established because his message is divine and his word is written in the skyline and your life is evident of his breath. And his love is greater than yours and mine. And when he tugs on your heartstrings to surrender to his will and be filled with his spirit, because that's what's going to lead you and guide you into all truth. Because his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And he manifests beyond the flesh. Now I want to tell you about my first spiritual experience, but I need to give you a little background. One day... Um, My great-aunt, I had heard that she was picking kids up and taking them to church, so I told my mom I wanted to go, right? So some of my cousins were going, and I wanted to go. So she started picking me up every Sunday for Sunday school and the main service. And Before I knew it, I'm reciting poems and in skits. And You know, I get a little older, I become a junior usher, and we, we love practicing for special occasions like that in the church, anniversaries and stuff like that, because we got to make up steps and marches, you know then I'd get to be around ten ish and I started slipping into the adult Bible study on my own from time to time, trying to make sense of things and see what they were talking about. And eventually I would begin to raise my hand and ask questions. But the thing is they always got it, it got more complicated because everybody had different answers. So one day that aunt who took me to church she says, We're gonna let you talk to the pastor and ask all your questions and I, I can remember her when she said it because the grin on her face You know, she smiled with her eyes. To me, she smiled with her eyes. So he wasn't, like, too successful with me either, but at least he admitted that he just didn't know. But I remember my first vision because this aunt, who I went to church with, was in it. So I made her a part of it. It was the first time I asked God to manifest himself to me. I lay in bed to talk to him, just like um, he was in the room with me, even though it was hard for me to grasp the idea of him. I did it anyway. It was easy for kids to just use their imagination. But I had to be around 12 when this happened, because that was the year that she passed away. And I used her death as an opportunity to try God. It was like a double dare moment that I probably got away with because of my age, or the fact that I had been so persistent over the years. But... After hearing of her passing that night, I lay in my bed and um, I said, if you show me her face, I said, just show me an image of her face and I'll believe that you're real and I won't doubt again. Now, the head of my bed was under my pillow. I mean, it was under my window. And so when I had a sheer curtain up and when the wind blew, My curtains would move, but this time the wind blew and my curtain blew across my face as I lay on my back looking up. But the one thing is that when it went back down, I saw an image begin to appear on my left. And I'm like, what? I slowly look and I rub my eyes. I'm rubbing my eyes and I'm staring long enough to believe what I'm seeing, right? Somehow I knew that it wasn't really her. But it was her image. It was her face. And I stared at it. And then she smiled. And that's when I got scared. And the vision vanished because I screamed, I'm scared. And my curtains blew back across my face and I went under my covers for the rest of that night. I don't even remember if I told anybody, but I knew it happened. And it wasn't a dream because I was wide awake and I had asked to see it. Visions are very interesting because you can tell that you're seeing into another realm and you feel the peace in that space just seconds before your emotions begin to surface. After that, though, I just went on being a kid and I thought about it at times and not knowing um, that that would be the first of many. I've seen huge warring angels in army fatigue. I stood at my bedside in the middle of the night um, and I've seen maybe for I don't know how long I seen angels I would see um, on several occasions like they were so big that I could only see their leg like part of their leg but I was never really scared I just rubbed my eyes to see if what I was seeing was real and uh, there was a time I was in a car accident and at the moment of impact I saw three angels flying around the car like at impact one on the roof. One to the left of the car and one to the right of the car. One for me and two for my children in the back seat. They had huge white wings and they were fast. I could tell they were fast and they were looking forward. Not down at the car. They were looking forward. And um, for some reason that stood out to me. Turns out I had to be cut out of that car because the engine was pushed back and the dash had pinned me in. I had... um deep seat belt lacerations across my chest and cracked ribs. And if I hadn't been in the seat with the seatbelt on, the doctor said I would have gone through the windshield and he could tell by the way that the belt cut into my chest. So my son, he had um, a torn liver that healed overnight and my daughter went into shock and she didn't speak for a couple of days, but we all turned out okay. I've had visions of people being healed while I was praying for them. I've walked by vehicles that were parked in my yard and had a sense that something was wrong, only to find out later that that vehicle was in an accident. I was gifted with a keen sense of intuition and precision and dreams, you know, but my own dreams. But somehow I knew that what was happening to me was not the gift of prophecy, nor was it I, I wasn't a psychic, I was not channeling spirits or becoming receptive to the variances of the spirit world, nor was that I, I wasn't even in an altered state of consciousness. I was just living part of a spiritual reality where God and the devil and demons were real, but the Father always allowed me to, dis, you know, to discern the difference, even when I walked contrary. He was my only source of substance. But I didn't understand my assignment. I didn't know he was giving me visions and dreams because he was calling me to prayer. He was calling me to a lifestyle. He wanted me to understand that his kingdom principles were established in the earth beyond tradition. But I always believed that my dad was a tool used to set things in motion for me. And the moment that he handed me that Bible, until the day he left. So I actually want to talk about that. I want to talk about my dad leaving and the issues that I ran into head-on and the mindset that I had developed because I thought I was entitled to. My father was always preparing me for something, especially when it came to dealing with people, specifically older men. He would say that, you know, you're a pretty girl and you need to be prepared and sort of impose some fear on me, you know. And he'd also talk to me about the fact that he would leave one day. He took me to the park and he told me that he was planning to leave. But he said he was trying to wait until I got a little older because um he wanted me he wanted to teach me more and I was like immediately traumatized by fear and uncertainty and my face showed it all but he looked at me like I should have known better, like I should have been able to handle it. So then I said, "Well, what about my little sister?" And he basically told me, You'll have learned enough for both of you. And that's the day that I became my sister's keeper. But still, I pleaded. And he emphasized that, you know, he didn't know how to commit. And he he grew to love my mom, but it didn't start that way. And I'm like, well, you love her now. And you want to commit to something else, just not her. And love, love doesn't leave, does it? And he just kind of laughed it off over the years and I would challenge him on his stances and I was trying to make him accountable. And um, he would just chalk it up to me being wise beyond my years or putting daddy in check and then laugh it off. And as the years went by, I thought less and less about him leaving because everything seemed fine. There were no fights. He came home every day. There were no other women per se. (laughs) There were plenty um, ready when my mom was not around, but He was still there, eating home-cooked meals and being served breakfast in bed on those fancy trays, so I grew to put it behind me until one day when one of those other women became an issue, and people were talking. And my mother, she maintained her course until um, she got a call and decided to take a drive in the middle of the night and witness it for herself, and then she left then with integrity still. Um, she left quietly in tears. Now, I only knew her as a steady, unwavering mother who worked hard and made things happen, but no no matter what, the bills were paid and on her part, and for birthdays, she spared no expense, like I said, and although she said she didn't have it, we didn't feel that. No matter what my mother heard up until that night, she remained faithful to the commitment of her marriage and her home, but it wasn't enough And me seeing the weight of the disappointment and the betrayal she took on left quite an impression on me. Now, I suppose that my dad, you know, that he had, um, he thought he prepared me for this, but he didn't prepare me for what would eventually happen. Because the day he actually left, he had to pry my arms from his neck. And he looked surprised and sort of cold. At least that's, you know, that's how I took it. And for the first time, I didn't realize who my father was. Even though he'd been telling me, I didn't, he he just didn't look like what I've always seen him, you know? And, um, but he didn't prepare me for repercussions. (laughs) He didn't prepare me for the mental and the the spiritual struggle that lie ahead. He didn't prepare me for the tears and the phases of dysfunction that would come along with this decision. He had not prepared me for the trickle-down effect or the broken walls that he once built. He had not prepared me for how my mother would ultimately respond. And he had not prepared me how to deal with this mentally. His, you know, his, he left his dad there. His, he had a mentally ill dad that he left in our house to live in our basement for years after he'd gone. And don't get me wrong, I love my great gran- my grandfather, but I had a special relationship with him. But his mental state, was still an inconvenience to us to have to deal with. And over time, I became the messenger between my parents, and and I dealt with my grandfather in the home in ways that no one really, you know, wanted to deal with, including my father, because he didn't take him with him. And so it took a level of patience that I didn't feel like I was, like, built for. But I stayed pretty quiet and like mild-mannered so it appeared to not bother me, but it did. Everything did. And now it's time for a brief interlude. As time goes on, my father went on to have two more children, and every so often he would say, you know, I I don't want to do to them what I did to you all. And I would say, you know, that sounds good, Dad, but you know we still exist, right? And he'd get quiet for a moment, and um, for whatever reason, after a while, there were no family events. There were no parties or barbecues that, you know, we did together. We didn't spend holidays with him. And don't get me wrong, there were times that he stopped by around Christmas time with his younger kids on his way to his mom's or something. And um, he didn't bring us gifts. He never had the money. But my mom brought his kids gifts. And that used to leave an impression on me. <laughs> and... um The only reason we went to his house when they first separated was because my mother sent us. And even then, it was hit or miss because he was always gone. Um, And there were plenty of photos in his house, right? But there were none of us or his grandchildren when that time came. And one time, he was um, dropping off my youngest sister at work. And I happened to see them sitting in the car in the parking lot. And I approached the car to say hi. And before I could get it out of my mouth, the first thing he said was, you can't get a discount because it's only for immediate family. My sister immediately reprimanded him. But there would be so many moments like this. I don't know for sure, but it felt like, you know, he was trying to forget who he was. And it seemed like he wanted a do-over but at our expense. And still, I tried to stay connected. I even um, let him walk me down the aisle. But my sister, the one I grew up with, she was different when it came to dealing with him. She wasn't going to even tell him when she was getting married and um, because she didn't have the same connection early on like I did. In fact, she said it feels like like he was more like um, she didn't have a father. And she used to feel bad for me because it was like I lost one. And for a long time, my father couldn't understand why she was so distant. And my younger sister um, invited me to um, her high school graduation dinner once at their house. And when I got there, I met a longtime friend of theirs who came up and introduced himself to me. And I introduced myself back and... um, But when I said who I was, the man became like so flabbergasted because he didn't know. And his reaction caught everybody off guard. And he kept insisting to know why he didn't know that my father had other kids. And nobody would answer him. So I proceeded to say, yes, he has two from his marriage. And the man said, marriage? And he liked to fell out. Now, I feel bad telling some of this stuff because we've moved past it, and I love my dad, but it happened, and I want to express what I learned from it, but if ever I was going to give him a pass, that was the day that he lost his chance because that was the moment um, that justified my realities. What I learned most from dealing with my father was the power of rejection and denial And the oxymoron of love and hate. I learned that one will work hard to sabotage the truth. And I learned that commitment and accountability are so unstable. So I want to talk about the aftermath of these things that I subjected myself to. I felt exposed when my dad left because he was my covering. And he was pretty strict. You know, in the beginning. Um... So when he wasn't there, I made decisions I wouldn't have normally made. I began to take my mother's struggles personally. I made her fight my own. And then I fought against her discipline and I lashed out and I left home at 17. When my dad was around, everything felt balanced. When he left, dysfunction revealed itself to me. And then the very things he warned me about was like drawn to me. On this one particular day I was riding my bike um down the road. I was circling in front of my cousin's house. And someone was always cooking out. And the street, you know, the street was usually like live in the summertime and um but this day, um my uncle got into an argument with this guy and um bottles were flying and glasses were being smashed everywhere and I took off. Um I took off towards home and the guy he was arguing with fighting with sped past me on his bike. He lived like diagonally across the street from me. My uncle got in his car and he was coming behind me like fast. He was catching up pretty fast. And I remember turning around and us catching eye contact. And I had to ride. We had a path in the woods and I had to ride my bike up into the woods. And I dropped it. And I ran across the path about 50 feet maybe. Just enough to get through my door and go, Mom, Uncle... And then it was like POW! One gunshot. I'll never forget the look of trepidation on my mother's face. She kept asking me what happened as she pushed past me because I was frozen. It wasn't the first time I heard a gunshot because a cousin of mine had shot me in the leg with a BB gun. But this shot was different. It was eerie. So my mother ran down the driveway, and she ran across the street, which scared me even more. And I, I tried to follow, but a cousin of mine just grabbed me, um, and I screamed. I screamed for my mom because I thought she was going to get shot, too. You know, I, I you don't know what's going on. But I saw her kneeled in front of my uncle. She was on the ground, I guess. I don't know. She was kneeled in front of him, but turns out that he had been shot in the face And the bullet came out the side of his head. And I saw blood stained on those cement steps every time I walked by that house for what seems like years. You know, I've seen people suffer. And I've watched loved ones die, one being my oldest sister. Um, But this was a homicide. And I never really knew how that affected me because I didn't have any bad dreams about it. And we never really talked about it after the fact. But recently, when I heard a door slam, I felt something familiar on the inside, like a slight adrenaline flow that seemed to have stuck a nerve-like. And it hit me that it wasn't the first time. And i have always like startled by little things, you know, a cup dropping or something falling over or somebody just suddenly walking into a room. And if I hear agitated voices, like somebody's frustrated or... Um, Yelling, I immediately feel guarded and reactive, even if it's not directed at me. And I I recently witnessed a bad argument and I I wasn't arguing, but I witnessed it and I couldn't catch my breath. I had a panic attack and it's the first time in years Um, I used to have panic attacks when I first came out of an abusive relationship, but this was the first time in years. So I just assumed it was par for the course, you know, Um, and I took some deep breaths and I calmed myself down. Um, I suppose one would call it PTSD, but I call it a revelation, an opportunity to be made whole. You know, a lot of things have been revealed to me while I was preparing for this podcast because of all the reflection that it's taking and the mental preparation involved. You know, I'm thinking things through, I'm pondering things, but I don't take it for you know lightly because I know that it's necessary to wade through levels of deliverance and to experience degrees of freedom. As long as we live, as long as we're here. Now I want to tell you about one of my biggest oppositions, one that I was ingrained to meet, <laughs> pretty much, but I wasn't prepared for. I was 14 when a man almost almost twice my age approached me as I was walking home. And I could hear him say something about me from a distance. And then he runs out towards me, but I, I knew better. So before he got all the way over to me, I said I'm only 14 years old. And you know, he insisted it's okay and went on to talk while I'm walking. Um about how beautiful I was and he just had to approach me to say hi and there's no harm done and he just wanted to know if he saw me again could he could he speak and I said no and he laughed and I kept walking I didn't even look back I went into the house right and I was like wow this like really happened this just happened what my father's been talking about like wow <laughs> so over the next few days a little voice came out of nowhere and this voice um says, um This is what your dad, you know, warned you about. And if you let him approach you again, basically, your father will hear about it and come back. That's the realm it was. That's how it kinda came to me, right? Um, so I knew that the voice wasn't divine. I knew that. Um and I would be playing a dangerous game because I wasn't equipped to battle the outcome. So I walked out of the pot and into the fire, as they say. You know, it doesn't always matter what your intentions are or how innocent you are. A consequence is a consequence. There are no gray areas in the spirit world. There's either darkness or there's light. There's cause and effect. (laughs) You know, but sure enough, when that man saw me again, he approached me the same exact way. Like he heard the same demon. And I gave place to the devil. And my father did not come back to handle it. Well, actually, at some point, he, when he gave me a black eye, my a uh, cousin of mine was so angry that he went to my mother. And my mom called him, and he came. And when he looked at my face, he said, Is this what you want? But, you know, I'm just crying. And then um, he told my cousin, that, you know, bring the dude here. And he walks over in the driveway, and uh, my dad says... Basically, to him, um, you know she's going to outgrow you, right? And I, I don't know. That's all he said. And the guy left. And, and <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting him to do. Um, but I do remember feeling let down by that. So, um, like, long story short, I, I outgrew him two kids and about eight or nine years later. With a couple of more years of fighting. You know, Um, And it was dark. I felt stagnant. Uh, When I had conversations with people about what I was going through, my words felt empty. I I just knew that I was just talking. And um, after a while, I did grow tired of repeating myself. And uh, there were times when he would take my kids from me when I tried to leave. He'd break into the house. He'd be waiting for me when I walked in, even when I had orders of protection. He'd spend the night in jail and be out the next day. I used to have a method. I'd dial 911 and place the phone down so he didn't know I was on the phone or he didn't see me, you know. And they would just show up. He couldn't figure out what I was doing. But he would start pinning me down for long periods of time to keep me from calling the cops. He loved to see me flinch. Then he'd take money from me. I used to hide uh, money in cereal boxes and in the refrigerator and in socks, balled up in the closet. I know some of you can relate to this. Um, once I wouldn't give him money, he walked out with my TV while my son was watching. He just unplugged the thing and picked it up and walked out. And I, me and my son were sitting there trying to figure out what was happening. Like it was hitting us slowly. <laughs> um, he was on drugs from the very beginning And um, little old me was ignorantly just taking matters into my own hands. Not understanding what was really going to, you know, transpire. Um, And with him, I was out of my element and I knew my frequency was off. When I finally did commit to not letting him control me and I met him at the door one day to prevent him from coming in my house. And he stepped in and slammed my head back into this half wall that was behind me. And my daughter, who was only months old at the time, she saw that for the first time. My son never really made any noise. He was very quiet, but my daughter she screamed, and my son seen him seeing him attack me uh, once while I was driving a car, and he actually tried to fight him. I never forget his little fist flailing, trying to fight him. Oh my goodness, But my daughter screamed, and for some reason in that moment. <sighs> Not seeing my baby, my son fighting, uh, I, I still was in a daze. Like, but when she screamed, it was like something just woke up, and I and I suddenly could see. And I hated him. I hated him right in that moment. And I stared through him in that moment. And he must have felt something strong because it was the first time he just backed up and left. Even though you know, on and off, he'd still give me hell after that. Um, one time I was in church and he walked right into the church and just sat right next to me. And um, I called the usher over and I gave her my kids. I acted like they had, you know, going to the children's service or whatnot. And then I said, I have to go to the bathroom just to sneak away from him I slept with every window and door locked in the summertime with no AC. I slept with knives clenched in my hands with my hands in my pillowcase to keep from cutting myself. But I would sleep with my head on my pillow and my hand underneath my pillow in the pillowcase with knives. And my father said one day, he said, you know, I recognize the look in your eyes. And he said, you know, if he broke in, in, it would be considered self-defense. Thankfully, I didn't have to find out. Um, But the only time that man ever truly left me alone was when I started dating my husband. I had a pretty quiet disposition when I met him, um, but I was very guarded, and I felt the residual of paranoia, and I tried not to show it, but it manifested in various ways depending on what or who I was dealing with, you know. And I was planning to move out of state for like a fresh start because that just seemed like my only way to get away from this guy before I met my husband. And I was working on two jobs on certain days, and while... The kids was in school and um, I was going to school at night while they were asleep and one of my close friends used to stay with them, you know, at night while I was in class for a couple hours. And I was thriving as a single mom. I was thriving in that role because I love being a mom. So I embraced the role and I wanted my kids to feel love. I wanted them to know that not only were they enough, but that they were enough for me. I actually never expected to get married, let alone meet somebody worthy enough to marry. My dad would say, you know, you're still pretty, but it'll be hard for you to find a man with two kids. And my response would be, well, that's okay for me because I'm not looking for one. Mind you, he met my mother under similar similar um, circumstances. <laughs> but um, he could be a bit negative and sarcastic as far as I was concerned. But the man I would marry would also come to adopt those two kids of mine. So I want to tell you more about this, more about my husband. I had a dream um, about how I would meet him. I saw the whole thing, even down to who introduced us. It was as though he was presented to me. I heard a voice say, this is your husband. It's the right voice, I believe. But I couldn't see his face because he was standing on the other side of a car. So I said, well, can I see his face? I remember getting excited, like, God is showing me my husband, (laughs) I knew I was in a dream and he was showing me my husband. So um, he said, I don't need you to see his face. I need you to see his heart. And I woke up and I wrote it down in a book. And I told a friend about the dream. And when I met him, I didn't remember the dream. Um, I was just telling my friend about how I met this guy that everybody knew but me. And I told her how it happened and who introduced us. And she says, you know, Tara, this sounds a lot like your dream, don't you think? Now, I went back and I read it, um, what I had written, because it was like a year prior, so I wasn't really thinking about it. Um, but it was to the T. And I still dismissed it because it felt too far-fetched. Um, uh, I guess I doubted it. and um, But I would come to have more dreams after that. <laughs> and I always had a witness because I always told someone. So I'll, I'll give you one more example um, of another significant dream. And it was like my husband wanted to speak to me, but he was contemplating you know he didn't he didn't he was contemplating for whatever reason, so he put a piece of paper with his name and number on it on my bedside table, and I read it, and I woke up, and I wrote down what I remembered um I always did that if I had dreams, I said, write them down so you don't forget, but I didn't remember all of his last name. I remembered the end, which was skill, and so I called my cousin the next day because. I didn't know his last name and I didn't know his number, but her and her husband, they were close to him from childhood, so I knew she'd know. So she told me, you know, she said his last name does have skill in it, <laughs> but the number wasn't his number. And so I was like, okay, you know, I didn't just let it go. I said, like, guess it was just a dream. And so the next time we were all in one place, maybe that next weekend, he was telling her husband that, He got a new phone, and he recited, he said he got a new number, too, and he recited the number out loud. And guess what? It was the same exact number I had written down in my dream, in order, in order. But it still didn't hit me right away until I looked up and I caught eye contact with my cousin, who was fixed on me in shock. Anyway, people would tell me how confident and popular he was growing up, and to me it didn't seem like it was like much had changed. He seemed to have a kind heart. He would do anything for anyone and everyone at the same time, and people seemed to always want to be around him. Sometimes he'd say to me, you know, you think everyone likes me, but they don't, and I'm sure he had to deal with some envy because of the energy he carried, um, you know, that people didn't like, but... For the most part, he was well received by many. But this was different for me. I usually avoided any form of attention. And I didn't know how to perceive anything outside of what I had learned to project. I didn't know how to be with someone who seemed to be so much for everyone. I just knew how to protect my space. And I knew that this was going to make it difficult. So I felt like I was always treading on people's spaces, right? And I uh, and that became my new fight, and I stayed in the flesh, steady trying to get around new issues without understanding the old ones. And all these years later, I can see how, why my God put him in my life, because it was, he was a version of me. He was one that God wanted me to see. And I believe that his plan was to be an integral part of us, you know, like a long-awaited force to be reckoned with in the earth, And I believe that he knew that we wouldn't compromise the truth and that we would um, be better together. But I didn't get the memo through all the noise. To me, my husband was my first love and my first light since the day my dad had left. And he was my new beginning after years of fight or flight. And I didn't know how to experience him spiritually. So naturally, I adopted what's known as the hero syndrome. I threw wrenches in the plan. But neither one of us had the best example of a marriage now. So it seemed like we were always on the same page at the wrong time. And relationships will be tested and tried among egos and pride and misunderstanding when weariness of expectations is at an all-time high. Then everything seems to be in vain. You know, I had to look up the word for marriage in Hebrew. Um, And it's kadas, which comes from the word kodesh which means set apart for a specific purpose. The sanctity of a marriage in ancient Hebrew refers to a progressive work of God, a work that reveals the principles of oneness in the earth, and is far more binding than we deem it to be in English. The value of marriage is reflected in the fact that it's a spiritual, emotional, physical, and sanctioned continuum of a purification that reveals the love of God. Now get this, the Hebrew letters that make up the word for sanction reveal God's will for it, his will, his will in it. Um, the letters are kof, dalit, and shin. Together, they mean a revolution or a circle in time. Hallelujah. By which two believers transition through life within a process of purification. That is connected to God. So in the end, all we can do is take accountability and be responsible for ourselves and seek understanding and pray together and trust in the process of a redemptive work. Anything else is a misrepresentation of his standards. I thought, since I had gone to church and repented of my sins and got married, that I was in right standing, but my thoughts were still carnal. And I was still governed by impulses of my thinking and secondary emotions and triggers and the contradictions of learned behavior. Yes, let's not forget about those cycles of generational sin. You know, the ones that we all bring to the table, the ones that have affected us directly and indirectly at some point in life. Things like psychological and social trauma from Violence and drug and alcohol exposure and all forms of mistreatment and anger issues and abuse and depression and neglect and even a lack of bonding and affection as a child. Foul language, it has its effect. And then there's mental illnesses and ailments of all kinds and the stigma of family secrets and those things that are swept under the rug like rape, molestation, incest, and the bliss of ignorance and all the ethics to deal with and the limitations of superstitions and immoral behaviors on many levels, all of which are a topic for another time. But as children, we learn to defend these frailties that were never designed for us long before we come to know the strength and the power that was. And this leads to mental conflict, which hinders our process and it affects our perspectives and our connection with God. And sometimes things have a way of biting you back, coming back. For instance, right? We say that God is omnipresent, but we don't always believe it because he hasn't been revealed according to our standards. We're tired of suffering and we say that we trust God, but we take matters into our own hands all the time. Then we stay busy trading prayer for time just to later plead our cause when we've hit a wall. You know, most of my life, I've nurtured strongholds unaware. I didn't know how to engage with God beyond the tradition of knowing him. And I didn't know how to engage with people beyond their flaws or mine. I read that the most difficult stronghold to overcome is the effect of people. And that's because emotional pain is tied to people. And it can become as strong as physical pain and emotions manifest in the unconscious mind long before we even know what to do with it. This is why I know that I'm required to pray, to examine what's deep-seated my most anxious thoughts, and to refocus every day. Other than that, I'm just going through the motions and hoping it all works out this is where cognitive distance comes in for me it's that conflict spoken of in romans 7 where it basically says for what i want to do i don't do but what i hate i do it's no longer i myself who do it but the flesh or that sinful nature in me man is able to contain inner conflict that's why we do the things we do that's why we'll try anything once God contains no conflict. He's all good. He is functional all the time. But we're born with a sinful nature because of the fallen state of man. And we're in the process of redemption, so we have to take measures. That means that something is required of us always. But cognitive dissonance is that discord in the state of mind that says that there's a lesser of two evils. It allows you to choose your poison It causes an abuser to downplay their actions. It tells the abused to stay. It says that one can run from their problems or drown their sorrows. It's what allows one to be able to eat themselves to death. This dissonance that I speak of lives beyond consequences. It says that I got this when you don't. It's when you know better, but you don't do better. It says I don't care when you should. It says, I give up when you're actually fighting the wrong battle. It's two conflicting ideas going on at the same time. It's speaking out of both sides of your mouth. It's your perception versus God's truth. And it's contrary to the word of God because it manifests unfaithfulness. We have to learn what it takes to not give into contradictions. We need to understand how to resolve what we can and release what we can't according to the living word, not our intellect, not our feelings. Because a person left to themselves is unstable and groundless and unspiritual in all their ways. The only resolve for a conflicted mind is the truth. Sometimes when we think that the problem is someone else, or something else, it's us. And it's who we are to God being presented to us. When Yeshua, the Messiah, was nailed to the stake, he prayed for the people, but none of the people were changed. Still, he was affected because he had learned to endure the right suffering. He didn't drink the poison they offered to numb or ease his pain. He actually drank the sour wine to remain conscious in the experience. And that's what brings me here today. Learning what it takes to be fully present and engaged beyond the rhetoric of my mind and the fact that I've allowed my life to negatively impact uh impact my children's thinking in the process. But I want them to go from surviving to thriving, something I didn't acquire at their age. I owe them that much. They need to embrace the idea of an entity that is greater than what we know and greater than how we feel all the time. They need to know that obedience should not be a burden. They need to be aware that deprogramming is a process. And they need to accept that what is required of them in a world that's always changing. Scripture says that a broken spirit and a contrite heart will no longer seek to do things its way. This is the type of heart that the Father says will never, he'll never turn from. But the average person's spirit has not been broken his way. It was broken by the world. And I, I was exposed to worldly attacks because I had created allies with my enemy through my trauma. I was bound to the memories of scars. <laughs> I was reactionary and headstrong in all the wrong ways. My mind was my matrix, a self-centered world of wishful thinking, a common space. But the seed that was planted in me the night that my, I got my first Bible would lead me to engage with God at various stages of my life and learn to lean on him when nothing else seemed to be going right. And, and it feels like it's my only choice. So maybe I didn't have the fairest start, but I can truly say that I knew he was always there. I knew he didn't lead me to a reprobate mind. He waited for me to just stop fighting because it was always me versus me. I gave away my power. I understood or misunderstood my authority. I rejected truth. I traded opportunities of deliverance for validation. I refused to overcome at times, And now in freedom, I analyze fault. I analyze the human nature in order to rightly divide the truth for me. And the Holy Spirit keeps me aware of the loopholes of the enemy and it helps me to understand spiritual matters as they pertain to me. And I love finding new ways to surrender. I love learning how to submit to him when I have no control because believe it or not, it's powerful. You know, we have to um, constantly talk to my eight-year-old daughter nowadays about things because she's still so pure and sensitive. She'll cry about bad news, especially if it's on the news and it's something about a, um, another kid. Um, she doesn't understand why people won't just do good or follow the rules. You know, recently she asked me we were walking by some garbage on the street if she could pick it up. And she cries if she thinks one of her parents is the least bit hurt. I mean, like stubbing a toe and saying, Ouch, we got to watch it because she, she, she feels it. We're stewards over our children, and it's up to us to protect them by training them to be fu- you know, functional in, in adversity and training them to connect to God. I recently had to explain to her that evil exists because dysfunction thrives in the earth for a set time. And I had to explain to her why we can't afford to be ignorant of the enemy's devices, why she needs to know some stuff, because it's going to face. She's going to see it. And why we're subjected to some things, you know. God tells us to subdue the earth by having dominion, not just for us to reign, but so that his will can serve us as we reign. It can serve us. This includes mastery over your own bodies and your minds, mentally, spiritually, physically, so that we're in the right state to be able to perceive his will above our own and see it through. I've been telling my kids to learn not to blame people, especially in your emotions. Um, Because I find that blame makes you helpless, and it creates a haughty mindset. And we can always afford to find another way to see things. And And now, because I've been feeling the resistance taking place sometimes in my sixteen year old we talk about the importance of submitting to the power of integrity and how that looks in different situations. and we talk about being true to yourself so that no one can use your truth against you. And I tell my adult children um, to learn from me now more than before. You know, they embrace and they honor the security of what I was for them when they were little, which is fine. But it's also important for them to embrace the process of what I'm becoming and to learn what it takes for them to hear from God. So, listen, I want to thank you all for tuning in and for being in this moment with me. And I don't take it lightly. I do hope that you're able to take something positive away from all of this and that you can apply it to your life. So I look forward to sharing more in the future with you and I look forward to the guests that I have planned to come on um and but until next time (laughs) may your strength be firm and I want you to remember that overcoming is always worth it